0: Mike Senior and this is the 54th episode of Project Studio Tea Break. I am here with deep undercover Olivia Award winner John Witten. <laughs> <laughs> Did we actually not talk about it on the show? Never have.
1: Okay, in that case... I've just been better than everyone for the last few months without even realising it. Mm, mm. So much the better. I mean, it seems a bit redundant to ask
0: you whether you've earned your tea break now.
1: (laughs) I haven't earned a thing since then. I've just been sort of coasting through. (laughs) The show that I was doing last Christmas, Wolf, Witch, Giant Fairy, Mm. was honoured with a Best Family Show uh, Olivier Award, which was very, very exciting. I mean, surely it should have been Best Wings. I think I think that was implied. Yeah. There weren't enough tickets to get the whole company to the Royal Albert Hall to enjoy it there. Oh, wow, okay. So the core company and our producers went, and the rest of us went to a pub, <laughs> rented an upstairs room and, and watched it on the projector. And
0: had far more fun. And had, I'll <laughs>
1: be honest, far more fun. Because... <laughs> Not, not least, because after we heard it announced and whooped and wailed and and got to cheers with ciders, which they didn't get to do. Oh, good, yeah. We could then just natter yeah. for the rest of the evening. They had to sit respectfully through hours and hours more content (laughs) through best alternative Shakespeare reenactment although they had the honor of when they left stage and had to be kind of ushered via backstage back to their seats yeah uh, they were met by Draco Malfoy oh wow cool that was the person they'd got to kind of greet people and show them (laughs) the way through backstage I can't remember the actor's actual name but but yeah him that guy wow so that's pretty neat I reckon Uh, have I earned my tea break this month Oh, God, you know, I'm not sure. I think I might be sneaking this one in. Okay. This month has been properly scattered. Yeah. I have flown to and from
0: Berlin four times in the last three weeks. Wow. Which is Far more than I'd have liked to. Do you think it's possible that there might be some large management company or agency who is playing pitch tennis with you? (laughs) I'm just wondering whether they're seeing how long of a rally they can keep you going with across the channel. (laughs) Well, they are doing an excellent job so far, I don't mind telling you.
1: I'll tell you what. I haven't earned myself a cocktail party. Okay. I haven't earned myself a feast or a parade. But maybe... A tea break is actually perfectly appropriate. I think so. Because I've done lots of little jobs, which in their own wearing way have been quite exhausting. I think that's about the right time for a tea break.
0: Can be a reason to sit down gently in a comfy chair and go, ah, as you dunk a digestive into your tea. Yeah. Not in a way that has to kind of involve or excite anyone else, just a sort of, oh, bit of rest. Now, we have had some follow-up this month. Okay, hit me. Following up from our, our scorn... Of the Ionic Original medium. Yes. Uh, One of our regular listeners, uh, Mike J. Hey, Mike. ...pointed out that there had been a recent controversy in the hi-fi world... Oh, yeah. ...to do with a company called MoFi, short for Mobile Fidelity, who have carved out uh, a niche for themselves Mm. for being one of these purveyors of uber more analogue than thou vinyl reissues (laughs) of classic albums. Okay. You know, in fact, I'll tell you what, I will send you a picture that comes from the inside of the sleeves of their deluxe vinyl editions. Okay, let's see. And that explains their ultra disc one-step process. Because, I mean, normally you'd use the original lacquer to create a father disc and then a mother disc and then a metal stamper with which the vinyl records that you then buy would be pressed. Mm. And the concept is, you know, there are so many... stages in between the original lacquer and the final vinyl disc you'd listen to, then obviously there are generation losses. and that Right,
1: the- yeah, because it's a copy of a copy of a
0: copy. Yeah, you know, MoFi have tried to strip this down by, you know, having a lacquer, and then a special kind of convert in the middle from which they then run their limited edition vinyl to get much closer to the source. Okay. And I mean, I'm assuming the reason it's done
1: in the longer step version is it means you can do more discs.
0: Oh yeah, it's all about
1: mass production. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean the stamper is then a big metal disc that is really hard wearing. But of course, because MoFi are doing limited edition, they can afford to kind of concertina the process so that there's not as much generation loss in the middle. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and play my cards. This sounds perfectly reasonable to me. Yeah.
1: This sounds like a perfectly reasonable way to get a higher fidelity to an original
0: master recording. Yeah, and it's been lauded in various of the hi-fi press. You know, some of the very top people in the hi-fi press, you know, list some of the MoFi albums as being some of the greatest vinyl releases ever done, as far as they're concerned, from an audiophile perspective. Wow, okay. Well, a little while back... Oh dear, (laughs) is something about to happen? A record shop owner, a guy called Mike Esposito did a YouTube video saying that he'd heard a rumor from the Mofi people. Oh yeah. That the discs weren't being made from analog masters, they were being making from digital files. (laughs) oh my god so that original master recording (laughs) was already ones and zeros and immediately I mean there was all sorts of hoo-ha about it and he was slammed by one of the 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 Rolling Stone article that was writing about this called him the dean of audiophile writing he's a guy who was like an expert witness for Quincy Jones versus the estate of Michael Jackson a while back wow a guy called Michael Fremer Mm -hmm. and he basically said oh no I've spoken to the people I trust at the company obviously off the record for the moment have said you know there's no way that this isn't from Analog Master Recordings. Yeah. And the company then offered to give Mike Esposito a tour of the place. Okay, cool. So we could look around and check the process. And basically the company then, when he went to visit them, admitted on video that for years... Oh my God. They had been putting the Analog Master Tape... So they had been using the Analog Master Tape. Okay. They'd been putting it through a DSD digital stage <laughs> before <laughs> making the first lacquer. So all these Uber analog releases—oh
1: my God—had all been going through digital. That's hilarious. That is exactly the kind of story a lazy musician like me likes to hear. Someone who's just, you know, I'll, I'll listen to it on my Tesco earbuds for now, and that that'll be fine. Yeah. This is exactly my kind of story. This confirms all my
0: priors.
1: Yeah. In a way that I really enjoy.
0: And finally, wow. They basically had to concede that this had happened. Yeah. And they've updated their little blurb on the uh, inside the jacket to this. And I wonder whether you can just spot the difference. Okay, let's have a peek. <laughs> 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 oh, wouldn't
1: you know it? There's another step. Now, they've been very clever, though, listeners. Um, <laughs> if, if you're not signed up for the newsletter and you can't look at this in person, because. <laughs> Because they have lined up their process, you know, in a a long line. Yeah. And they've put it directly above the traditional process. And you can see that the traditional process is much longer just because it's got more steps in it. Yeah. Now, what they've done when they had to add another step to their own is they just put it underneath the first step,
0: therefore not making their chain any longer at all. (laughs) No. They just sort of squished their chain up. The other thing I love about it, the way they've done it, is that there are icons for all the stages. So you've got the analog master tape that has these lovely little reels, mm. and then all the various disc stages that look like little vinyl discs. Mm. But the digital stage isn't a whole bunch of zeros and ones or any kind of digital stuff or circuit or something. It just says DSD. <laughs> yes, you're so right. So if you didn't know what DSD was... You would still have no way of knowing. Yeah. That's wonderful. And apparently now um, someone is suing MoFi in a class action lawsuit on behalf of every buyer of a, a MoFi record before 2022. I'm- I mean, yeah. (laughs) Since they updated their packaging. Yeah, that seems entirely
1: fair. If this is what you're going to build your company on, then the one thing you really can't be doing (laughs) is
0: writing digital info to a vinyl disc. (laughs) I mean, it's just... The thing is that all of this stuff about these kind of more analogue-than-thou things Mm. is that... The bottom line is that it being analogue is always considered to be the better thing. Right, yes. You see, if you then said, "Okay, I still think those MoFi releases are great, then why shouldn't you say, "Okay, I won't have the vinyl at all. I'll just have the DSD digital file, which has no generation loss from the original master tape. Yeah, I mean, exactly. (laughs) So the moment it has that DSD stage, it completely invalidates the whole idea of it being on vinyl because their same arguments for it being vinyl would be the same arguments to actually go from the DSD
1: okay let me throw something at you having no kind of experience or indeed opinions on this myself i'm going to parrot someone else's i have one friend who really likes vinyl who whenever they go into the studio records to tape all this sort of thing Mm. and their argument is that they think it sounds better yeah but they distinguish they don't think it sounds more accurate yes they like the sound of vinyl it's a warmth it's a roundness so by that logic it would be better to have it you know on vinyl even if you could have the digital file that was written onto the vinyl the vinyl i guess then works as a sort of compressor
0: eq that you're fond of it ceases to become a, an argument of fidelity which is a lot of what the audiophile argument is about yes it's less an argument of fidelity and more an argument of coloration yeah and then it's just oh i like vinyl more rather than oh if you don't listen to everything off vinyl then your ears are made of cloth
1: it actually takes it kind of the opposite way from this claim that you're listening to it as the artist intended yeah you're not at all what you're doing is you're going to the national gallery and putting instagram filters <laughs> over all the paintings and and honestly look if you prefer to look at them that way if you prefer the look of the paintings that way with the kitten filter yes yeah, there you go <laughs> <laughs> by all means yeah. <laughs> but you don't get to make the claim that that's what manet really meant no this is such lovely news mike this is so wonderfully incredibly silly
0: And i mean it, it makes it so much better that there was that brief mid-stage where people like michael Fremer came out of the woodwork to question the guy's skepticism yeah on the basis of oh they sound incredible and having pinned their colours to the mast. I mean, all of us have done this. Yeah, We've talked about this multiple times in Facepalm of, you know, automating the wrong channel and thinking that you're making a difference. But it's somehow so much juicier with audiophiles who put so much cachet behind it.
1: It is. I recently had a moment of that. I was doing a, a trumpet recording session in Berlin and we were trying to do a mic comparison. Yes. And it was two perfectly nice mics and we recorded something and we, we A-B'd between them. And every everyone agreed that we all liked the first mic better and i was hmm. oh mike i was so tempted to just let it slide because they were both fine mics yeah and we had a lot to get through that day and all the rest but because i learned at the feet of mike senior i was like oh is one of them louder It's <laughs> said well no they're, they're about the same distance from that i was like i know i know but could you just normalize both of them for me yeah and then mix them round and we try again mm. And wouldn't you know it, Mike, no one could tell the difference. It turns out we all preferred the louder one before, because of course we did. You know, there's more detail, there's more power, there's more warmth, there's more everything, because there is more everything. You are now a Jedi. Yes, and it's horrible, and it's rubbish, because it meant that we then had 15 minutes of our massive audiophile producer trying to have an opinion between the two. Oh dear. When the fact was in that room with that instrument, they were indistinguishable. No difference. Absolutely <laughs> no difference.
0: And let me guess, they shot the messenger effectively. <laughs> <laughs> you were getting daggers from the producer. Well, this is the lovely thing, isn't it, because no one can really
1: complain per se, but yes, there was a lot of daggers being shot in my direction. And then eventually the argument that, like, well, look, if one of them's coming in louder, that does mean that it's kind of a higher resolution. Higher over the noise floor kind of idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, to which I said, yes, yeah, sure, totally that. <laughs> you found that common ground. Yeah, exactly. You know, ignoring for the moment the fact that this is going to go behind a piano and a rhythm section and double bass and all the rest of this stuff like this. <laughs> and and the fact that our trumpeter is warm and ready to go. And that, for me, is 5,000 times... Mm. Actually, you know, I'm not going to say that. I was about to say it's 5,000 times more important. And that's not true. I think my favourite way to work is when I'm allowed to pretend that's true, that all that matters is the performance, and I have someone else who, in the moment, we both agree I'm going to drastically (laughs) underappreciate, who makes sure it sounds gorgeous. Yeah. And they can think that I'm faffing around doing nothing, and that's fine. We can both believe that we're the only people working in the room. And, of course, the performer gets to believe that they're the only one working in the room. (laughs)
0: Which brings us to this month's news and our first bit of news. It's a sad piece of news because this will unfortunately be the very last episode of Project Studio Tea Break. Before the feature film. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It'll be like Deadwood. You know, (laughs) we'll leave it a couple of years and then we'll come back and do a a special like Grammys double episode or something. (laughs) I shouldn't say this. We've been bought by Paramount.
1: Yes. We're going to be directed by um, JJ Abrams. We've got the people who did Avengers on our visual effects.
0: And it's going to be called Commercial Studio Banquet. (laughs) (laughs) commercial studio banquet
1: exactly (laughs) i didn't think we were dropping the title in this episode mike but okay
0: and what a ride it has been for the last four and a half years has been a and in fact we have recently passed an important milestone oh which is that because we've exceeded a hundred thousand downloads oh that's really nice thanks everyone there have been so many pioneering moments i mean obviously a series of pioneering toast foley firsts
1: (laughs) Well, which the outside world had no choice but to sit up and take notice
0: of. As was evidenced by our very own fleeting Google Whack. I mean, there can't be that many podcasts (laughs) who've had one. No, not anymore. We've had the only known interview with elusive dominatrix Miss T.
1: Yeah, no, she has gone completely off the wires since then.
0: We've had a world record. God, we have had a world record. And an energy quotient rating of (laughs) 4.98. <laughs> oh, I mean, it didn't quite match the perfect five, but four point nine is pretty good. That needs to go top of my CV, as far as I'm concerned. We'll console ourselves with our gold Curio of the Week badge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Which is actually still sitting up on my wall. I, I put it Good, I put up Good. On the that's wall exactly my where it
1: belongs. So long as you leave room for the
0: platinum record
1: next to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's entirely allowed. Well, I figured, you know, you've got the Olivier Award and I need to have something that truly balances it out. <laughs> <laughs> there is one cast member who I'm not going to name. Yeah. Who all they could talk about at the pub
1: was that they wanted to lick the Olivier Award. <laughs> and we are all a little giddy, so this was, is this was just fine. But yeah. anyway, then the core team jump in a cab when things finally wrap up yeah. at the Royal Albert Hall, and they zoom over. Oh, wouldn't you know it, this cast member wasn't joking. <laughs> I don't know how many licked Olivier's there are, but we've got
0: one of them, I guess. I mean, I'm hoping that you're going to tell me the answer to the question that I'm sure you must have asked. Which is that? What did it taste like? <laughs> What is that sweet taste of success?
1: I, you know, I did ask them what it tasted like and they said victory. But the look on their face made me think that that at least wasn't the only flavor and that they were maybe
0: slightly regretting their decision. Or that victory was some kind of brand of brass polish. <laughs>
1: Yes, I could entirely believe that.
0: So, have you had any uh, particular
1: highlights of the last 53 episodes? Oh, my words. I mean, it's turned me on to a huge amount of good music. Yes, ditto. And about as much silly music. (laughs) I know that there's a lot of fan theories out there that believe that my um, naive ingenue bit is all an act that I do to kind of make people who aren't experts feel welcome. Mm. I can reveal now it is entirely genuine. I (laughs) learn as much as anyone in these episodes. Like my, mm. my mixing has got my recording I've got new instruments
0: <laughs> purely as a result of this like there's I can never watch another drama production without looking for them passing a condom between the players <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, I think I think a real highlight for me has been the games that I have consistently <laughs> been awful at, but I really enjoyed nonetheless. The kind of which of these is real sort of games? Oh that...
0: yeah, some of the quizzes. Mm. I mean mm-hmm. we had a couple of Christmas quizzes, one about sleigh bells and various We had the actors albums. Yeah, oh yes. You did a great one about festivals. <laughs> I'd forgotten the festivals one.
1: I mean, the, the cleansing power of
0: confessing one's face palms. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly catharsis there, I would say. abs are bloody lootly There have been some great audio moments too. I mean, we've had the sound of alligators on heliox. <laughs> we've had ah! a, a cheetah purring. Oh my gosh, yeah. We've had the Golden Gate Bridge sounding like an Aeolian harp. There was one time where your jam was the podcast
1: Field Recordings. Yes! And that is one of my favourite podcasts to this day. Yeah. I think it's just such an amazing idea for those of you who aren't quite as deep in the um in the lore of this podcast (laughs) it was started by someone just standing in a field and recording the sound of the field and since then people have submitted the perfect range from fascinating how on earth did they get that sounds to just you know westminster two o'clock in the afternoon (laughs) it's an
0: incredible library i think my highlight though for audio moments has to be the the enthusiasm with which you received my fake spider sonification on behalf of Marcus Bueller. Oh, yes! Which said everything that we ever needed to know about that research project. Oh, my God. Oh, I still feel a little bit angry. I'm still slightly upset. We've had a lot of cool research stuff, actually. I think so. You know, funny stuff we followed up that then has been quite interesting. Like, there was a whole bunch of stuff about the, the Stonehenge thing. <sighs> yes! And the and the Heliox Alligators as well was great. The cat vocalisation was great. There were loads of them where you actually look underneath the surface of some of these press releases that the rest of the world sees and you get to a whole bunch of crazy stuff underneath. Or even that one with the Zero-G spaceflight thingy. Oh, 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 so much anger. <laughs> so much unhappiness there. Oh. But how can we miss off our list of highlights? The Rebecca Angel trailer. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then getting Rebecca Angel... The real Rebecca Angel... <laughs> Um, onto the podcast to introduce us to the Rebeccaverse.
1: Not to toot our own horn so much, but I think it speaks very highly of us that we could forget that <laughs> that that could be that that could be um, not the first thing <laughs> that we say. I tell you what, though, when like I think the most moving thing to come out of this podcast for me, and I, I don't think I've talked about this on the show before, was when we were deep in pandemic. Yeah, and I was working at the Jam Factory, which was sadly not an alternative improvised. Music venue there was actually just <laughs> a factory that produced jam. As you know, all the performance stuff was gone, and I couldn't get the work, and I needed the money. Yeah, and this featured in our chats, and was all well and good. Yeah, and then I got an email from a musician in the states who thanked me for being quite so open about that. Who'd recently, you know, in the pandemic, had the need to take on other work, non-music work. And that they had been feeling really rubbish about it. Yeah. But hearing me not feel particularly rubbish about it and just laugh and joke had made them feel like this is something they could be honest to people about.
0: Oh, wow. And
1: cool. that was such a moment for me of just yeah. this, this humbling feeling of like, yeah, I'm wittering away into quite a number of people's ears every <laughs> every month, which they are somehow enduring. And how glorious to have been given, like, the privilege of of having that sort of impact.
0: Yeah. So that's a moment that really stands out for me. And also, I just think it's something that we don't hear enough, is the stories of otherwise demonstrably competent professionals (laughs) cocking things up because there's a, there's a skill in dealing with that isn't there
1: yeah you're always going to have face palms you just get better at sort of finding your way through them and and equally when when you can't realising that the world doesn't end
0: even though you want it to at the point where Maltesers scatter across the stage oh gosh
1: in that moment you could really do with it maybe ending a little bit
0: yeah Yeah. when the entire studio doesn't work and you've got the client coming in in two hours <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) And of course, we can now give a final verdict on the debate that has been going throughout the whole series.
1: Oh, my word. That was like episode
0: one or two or something where that (laughs) beef was originally... The question is, is Ludovico Arnaudi, as Mike maintains an irredeemably unscrupulous hack peddling a threadbare musical formula for cash, (laughs) or, as John asserts, a genuine artist enriching the world with beautifully framed melody? Mm -hmm. And... Looking at the poll, as of today, yep, yep. it is even Stevens at 6-0. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a perfection in that, I think. I think there
1: is. I think perfectly balanced is the way that that should wind up.
0: The dark and light sides are
1: equally weighted. Okay, I'm willing to shake hands with you mm. and call it you know, unlockdownable, perhaps it is a superposition of both. Yeah, perhaps what the universe is telling us <laughs> is that absolutely it is it is 100% a cynical cash grab of a musical formula. Mm. It is also very pretty. Yeah. And as uncomfortable as as those two truths may make you there they are.
0: So he's an irredeemably inscrupulous hack peddling a threadbare musical formula for cash. Who is also a genuine artist enriching the world with beautifully framed melody? I feel like we can riffle shuffle those together, you know what I mean? <laughs> and an unscrupulously genuine artist with. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Enriching yes. the hack with pedals of beautifully framed formula. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> Wait a minute. Now, if end the podcast we must, I can scarcely think of a cooler and more indie move than to end it at episode 54. Oh my gosh, I hadn't even thought about that. Because you see, that means pro rata, we've each done 27 episodes, (laughs) which puts both us as podcasters into the 27 club. Okay, okay, yes. (laughs) I, I assume you know what I'm talking about here.
1: Well, yes, this is apparently, if you're going to burn bright... And then leave a beautiful corpse, mm. live, live fast, die young. Mm. Then that is the age at which you should die. Now, we, we have both, in purely temporal terms
0: slightly overshot the mark <laughs> having had even more bright burning to do than pretenders like like Jimi Hendrix and Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse and Jim Morrison and yeah, people yeah, Brian Jones. All that lot mm. but in terms of podcast that makes me very happy indeed. You know, why not sneak in the back door of the 27 Club kind of on a technicality.
1: And also this surely makes us, this gives us the award, what I was thinking of Project Studio 54 <laughs> 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 and if that's not the name of this episode then I'll I'll riot I was about to say I'll quit but of course when we're finishing the podcast that becomes less of a
0: threat (laughs) oh I love that that didn't even cross my mind (laughs) <laughs> oh wow it is in more ways than one and a very appropriate moment to hit stop now the issue is though mm. this is a bit of a, a kind of an urban myth the idea of the 27 club that like famous musicians die more often at the age of 27 mm. and it turns out that the uh, british medical journal did a retrospective statistical analysis of exactly this question oh wow in uh, 2011 good taking all musicians who had had a UK number one album between 1956 and 2007. Okay. So all the way from Frank Sinatra's Songs for Swinging Lovers in 56 to Leona Lewis's Spirit classic in uh, 2007. <laughs> And amongst those 1,046 musicians, Mm. the way they characterised it then was that a musician was a famous musician if they had had this number one already. Okay, that makes sense. And it turns out that the median age at which they had that number one album was actually 26. Oh, interesting. So immediately that eliminated a bunch of them from the cohort. Right, yeah. And they also had to eliminate 114 of these 1,046 because there was no recorded date of birth. Wow, that's very surprising. They rather kind of... um, laconically say the uh, 10% of musicians with no recorded date of birth were likely to be less famous for example bass players and backing singers <laughs> <laughs> so i thought that was fun i would say so and also we excluded five <laughs> unlucky musicians with posthumous number one albums because they were never alive and <laughs> famous at the same time according to our definition So basically, what they found by going through this stuff was that really, if you take deaths per number of at-risk musicians at that age, Mm. that the deaths at 27 were no more really than the deaths at 25 or 32. Interesting. And that actually, the real finding was that as a whole, the risk of death for famous musicians was two or three times that of the general population throughout the kind of 20s and 30s. There was a big peak at about 32 wow so I don't know whether this makes you feel more at risk now <laughs> <laughs> well no see I, I'm now 33 so thankfully I dodged the assassins just long enough I mean you know me I went back to the actual study itself rather than just reading the headline mm. and there were just so many great bits in it
1: <laughs> uh, here's
0: one little passage oh yes please the myth of the 27 club supposes that musicians are more likely to die at age 27 whereas our results show that they have a generally increased risk throughout their 20s and 30s this finding should be of international concern as musicians greatly contribute to populations' quality of life. So there's immense value in keeping them alive, brackets, and working, brackets, (laughs) as long as possible. Like, did we need a paper to tell us that it's worth people not dying? That it would be nice if people didn't die. We've decided to illuminate the blindingly obvious. That is so gorgeously written, though. Another cracker. Our sampling scheme only captured three of the seven most famous 27 Club members, as one fell outside our time period, Robert Johnson, Mm. and three did not have a number one UK album. Ah. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison. We did capture seven Muppets. (laughs) Muppets had a number one album and in beautiful researcher style, (laughs) they included them in the statistics, but they judged their deaths by the deaths of the performers who played them.
1: You know what? That seems fair to me. I'm 100% on board. Exceptional. I love this. I can't help but feel that this is some very serious researchers who, every time they wanted to let off steam, Mm. they just did a bit more work on this particular paper.
0: (laughs) It was left open on one computer in the corner. Yes, I was also intrigued by one of the cited papers that I didn't follow up, but it was Howland J. Hingson R. Alcohol as a Risk Factor for Drownings. A Review of the Literature (laughs) 1950 to 1985. I mean, there's whole areas of research. You go, crumbs, I could get lost in there. Yes. Now, towards the end of the study, they're clear about the limitations of their research. Hmm. They go, "Um, uh, other studies based on alternative definitions of fame are needed before we can definitively state that the 27 Club is a chance finding. Two example definitions are using a number one UK single rather than an album, which would capture one-hit wonders, which is a fair point, and using a number one album in the US, which would examine the consequences of being famous in the US. And as it happens, there was actually another study done in the US. Oh,
1: hooray! Oh, I'm so glad. I thought I thought that was going to be a quiet fade-out. But no, good. Excellent.
0: By Professor Diana Theodora Kenny of the um, University of Sydney. Amazing name. Who looked at the uh, US statistics. Her sample was performing pop musicians. So this wasn't just the famous people from all popular genres. Mm. So she had a group of people that's about 12,500 who died between 1950 and June 2014. And those findings were really interesting because musicians were almost twice as likely to die at 56 than at 27. (laughs) But more interestingly, across the board... Average life expectancy was roughly 20 years less than in the general population in every decade. Oh, that's really sad. And in fact, in the 90s, it was like 25 years less. And I've got a great graph to send you from this article. Yes, please. They broke down the causes of death into uh, accidental suicide and homicide and compared it to the actual national statistics for deaths. Oh, my word. Like, accidental death was five or ten times higher suicide was between two and seven times higher and homicide rates were up to eight times higher wow i mean so being a musician this is a risky business
1: just visually it's really something because the general u.s population line crawls along the bottom of every single one of these graphs yeah and then the pop musicians line just kind of sails up over
0: it it's like a mountain range in the background of a ground level forest there's the kind of low-lying farmland and then mountains up above it but the thing that intrigues me most about these statistics is why does the average life expectancy decrease to 25 years less in the 90s? And I think the answer might be Nickelback. (laughs) I mean, you could maybe paint it as the entire grunge scene, but I think I would lay the blame with Nickelback, frankly.
1: I think this is an important bit of information. They need to publish an addendum. (laughs) Stunning new research has found. The impact of Nickelback. Because there are still lives we can save. (laughs)
0: And it is surely another sign that this final episode of our series of podcasts is blessed that, into my email inbox this month, dropped a fresh press release from Lydia Sherwood of Presto Public Relations.
1: Mike, words
0: cannot describe how happy I am to hear that. That is glorious, glorious news. What do you got for me? Joining the illustrious roster that has already featured Rebecca Angel and Todd Mosby, Mm. we have the Roosevelt Sessions, fun-loving criminals are back with a new EP, a new lineup, and a USA tour in November. Now, is that a name that I've actually heard? I know, that was my thought, Crumbs, an artist I hear about from Lydia Sherwood that I don't go, who? Yes, <laughs> yes, these are American <laughs> rap rock bands. Exactly. Scooby Snacks, okay, yes. Oh, my God. And I'm glad you know Scooby Snacks. Did you ever see the video of Scooby Snacks? I don't think so, no. (laughs) Because one of the things that they do in the video is that they're performing... For what looks like a kind of a dinner theatre audience of old age pensioners. Okay. And so it's particularly amusing that the picture that they provided with the press release is this one. Oh wow! Where they're looking surprisingly close to being members of their own audience. Also, <laughs> <cell. laughs> oh, so the the shot is them at the bottom of a flight of
1: stairs and the New York subway, and it's very gritty and it's very grimy, and they look very cool and very masculine. The three members of the band are not all of the same height. Two of them are, Mm. and one of them appears to be distinctly shorter. This is fine and nothing to necessarily (laughs) remark on. No. Except for the fact that for this photo, they have pushed the shorter one back... No, back another step. Yep, up onto the staircase so that in the photo, the heads are about at the same level. That draws more attention to it than just having them standing in a row would, I reckon. Yes, I reckon so. Or they could have sat them all on the step. Well, yeah, a hundred different options. But what they did...
0: I'm not fully convinced by. Yeah. So let's hear what, what magic has been offered. Charismatic multi-instrumentalist Brian fast Lizer is on lead vocal duties following the departure of Huey Morgan in November last year. Wait a minute, it's a trio and one of them's different. And furthermore, there were only two founding members in that trio, one of whom has now left. <laughs> They'd already replaced their drummer with a guy called Front Ben Beanie, And the guy who's just left was the front man. Okay. So Brian has now taken over the vocals that Huey used to do. And my question is that, thinking back to their heyday, what was it that drew people to the fun-loving criminals in the first place? I mean, I'm not sure it was the charismatic multi-instrumentalist.
1: <laughs> this is this is fair. I think what drew is that I was 15. And it's what everyone
0: else was listening to. <laughs> There are some choice, of course, some choice comments in the press release. Things like, Fun-loving criminals are entering a new chapter, said Fast, with a steely focus on creating new music that our fans will love. A steely focus? What were they trying to do before? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a very good question. Another thing just occurred to me. Oh, yeah. Right. I wonder whether this is like a trade descriptions violation. Oh, yeah. Because if the fun-loving criminals were this original trio, Mm -hmm. and they've got rid of two of the members... Shouldn't it be the fun-loving criminal (laughs) with two guest perpetrators? Yes. No, I think think you're right. I think with
1: only the removal of a single S, they could more accurately represent the world that they're in. (laughs) The Fun loving Criminal <laughs> and his handlers <laughs> and the prison guards and, like... Security. Yeah, there's
0: a lot of fun to be had here. All okay, right, so what else does Lydia Sherwood have to say? There's some just great nonsense, like... Shake It Loose, the second track on the EP, addresses the mental health issues that inspired Fast and Frank to create new music and perform to their fans worldwide after the departure of Morgan, Huey Morgan. Mm. With silky backing vocals from Ben Beanie, Fast, with his smoky Brooklyn drawl, laments... Back then you didn't listen to what was true. Now it's all we want to hear from you. It's not about right. It's not about wrong. Now, to me, those two things have no connection whatsoever. (laughs)
1: Nothing to do with each other at all. For some reason, every time I I hear one of these press releases, they strike me as something that was written by someone without a backspace key. (laughs) on their keyboard <laughs> there is no way there was any kind of looking back no typing back editing process this is just first draft have you ever seen like really early ai text generation <laughs> where all it would think about is what's the last word i've said yeah and what's a word that works all right as a pair with that word and then repeat You know, okay now what's yes. the last <laughs> word i've said because every single one of those word pairs sort of you know you can get by it's just when you take three or four of them in a go that it becomes absolute drivel but
0: i mean maybe this is the punchline to this whole thing is that actually after ripping into lydia sherwood for so many episodes it will finally be revealed that she was ai all along And so sad as it is, Ugh. we approach our final facepalm. We're just out of mistakes. That's it. We've perfected ourselves over the last 53 <laughs> episodes. Good for life, terrible for content production. <laughs> so um, I'm reaching back for a classic here. I was reminded of this one the other day when uh, I was thinking about the shows that I used to go to when I was in the Sound on Sound office working in the editorial team. Mm. Every year, we would actually come to Germany to the Frankfurt Music Messe.
1: Okay. And
0: at the time the Frankfurt Musikmesse was the biggest show in Europe. Right. You know, the only bigger show really worldwide was the NAMM show in the US. Mm. And so the Music Messer was a big deal as far as we were concerned. And pretty much the whole of the SOS office went more pandered over to Frankfurt for a few days. Amazing. Because they'd often announce new products. You know, you get to meet all the distributors, all the manufacturers and everything there because everyone was in one place. Mm. And there were genuinely exciting product launches there. Like, for example, I remember going to see the first demonstration of melodyne's dna technology <gasps> wow okay yeah just being in a room and watching a bunch of like hardened music tech journalists just dropping their jaws when the guy said oh yeah and i'll get rid of this note now or i'll shift it to a different one <laughs> you would the impossible suddenly became possible
1: i remember that my first real jaw drop on melodyne dna was was someone changing the notes inside a guitar chord. Yeah. Which, for me, was just such like a tight bundle of unopenable nonsense. Yeah. You know, you can put it all up, you can put it all down, but you cannot get in the middle of it.
0: No. And then, apparently,
1: you just can. Yeah. I can't imagine being in that room.
0: I mean, I actually ended up reviewing that first Melodyne DNA thing for the magazine. Oh, okay. I mean, you know, they can do their demos, and they can choose the audio that happens to work with their algorithm. Yeah, yeah. So you're always a little bit sceptical, even though it was bloody impressive what they did. It was an acoustic guitar Thing. Mm. but the one that really got me was that I took a string quartet recording huh. and I flipped it into the minor oh wow <laughs> and I mean that was the audio example I would send out to everyone and go this thing is incredible yeah I mean I couldn't actually include it with the audio files I provided for the piece because it was copyright material but that was just one of those moments I thought wow mm. but I mean on the flip side every year you'd go around and see just some Stupid products, (laughs) crazy products. And in fact, to this day, I still have on the wall of my studio a flyer from the Flavor Reeds company. Oh, yeah? It's a whole bunch of reeds that are provided with different fruit (laughs) flavours. Oh, no, you're joking. And they're all different (laughs) colours. And the strap line was taste the music oh that's hilarious and this was real absolutely for clarinet and alto sax in three
1: stiffnesses my word okay sure i mean in
0: their defense we're still talking about it yeah i don't even know whether the company still exists but it was a cracker Mm -hmm. in 10 fun flavors that is, that's magnificent. But the Frankfurt Music Musikmesse was also legendary amongst the staff as a massive booze-up. Oh, yeah. And basically, it was pretty soul-crushing, trolling around all the halls, looking at all these reissues of synthesizers and whatever. Most of which was really not interesting at all, and you just had to get all the stuff so that you could write it up for the news pages. And it was a real grind going around all these things. And the noise everywhere was so much, it really ground you down. Mm. So you were ready to go out on the lash every Every evening I believe that and you'd end up in some bar somewhere far too late. <laughs> there was a lot of being extremely ill slash hungover in in hotel rooms and then kind of falling out of bed and having to do the same thing the following day. okay It was like three or four days of the show. and this is where the face palms come in mm. because, it was one year where, you know, I'd thought that I'd got round the show and done all the stuff I needed to do. And so I was like, oh, thank heavens, I can really get six sheets to the wind this evening because there's nothing else I need to do. Mm-hmm. And so was heavily into the bevies already. By the time I had a conversation with one of my colleagues and discovered that there'd actually been the announcement of a last minute press conference for the following morning. Okay. Between Yamaha and Roland. <gasps> I mean, this is a time when, I mean, it was Yamaha Roland Korg were pretty much the biggest names in like synths and hardware music stuff i mean there was a lot of hardware studio equipment still
1: okay so a couple of fairly heavy hitters
0: i mean roland had things like the v synth and yamaha had all those great physical modeling synths like the vm1 or whatever it was called yeah they also had head-to-head competing multi-trackers that were the king of the multi-track hill in both camps you know the yamaha had their 2416 or something and the mm. and uh, roland had the vs2480 and they were you know they were always vying to be which was the best one. Oh, interesting. They also had competing transmission standards. Right, but incompatible with each other. Roland had the R Bus format that they did for all the digital mixes, and Yamaha had done MLAN, which was a similar kind of thing going between different mixers and like interfaces and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so it was like, oh wow, if something is coming from Yamaha and Roland as a joint press conference, this could be huge. <laughs> and we were already well out on the lash and really <laughs> Kind of didn't care at that point and stayed out far, far too late. Oh my word. Despite the fact that this joint press release was at 9 a.m. the following morning. <laughs> Glattens for punishment. And I must have got in at about, I don't know, four in the morning or oh something. My God barely standing and i really don't know quite how it was i managed to get myself through staring at a cup of coffee to this press conference at 9am in the morning
1: no i can't imagine either
0: to be fair with a lot of extremely bleary looking music tech journalists (laughs) and various pundits and stuff but the place was packed Because it was hotly anticipated. It's like, you know, you could see all the big wigs that we knew from the, you know, Yamaha and Roland. Mm. All like hobnobbing and up on the stage and whatever else. And so then the guy walks up to the podium and starts building up the anticipation. Mm -hmm. Yes, we've decided to bring together GM and XG (laughs) into a new format called GM2. That's what you dragged yourself out of bed for. (laughs) It's like... The very worst thing you could possibly be forced to listen to was then <laughs> with a massive hangover at nine in the morning. Oh, God, of course. You had to listen to that in your current state. Being assaulted then by all the cheesy synth brass patches. and Oh, that's amazingly awful. How, yeah, you now had a shakuhachi that was available in the same slot in GM and XG. And <laughs> oh, <laughs> and it was so unnecessary because there was no reason i had to be at the show at that time in the morning i'd done it all oh my word oh, there was a lot of face palming going on there the beauty of it is, is a
1: collective face palm because you know you weren't the only one feeling that way yeah we could feel our pain together had you been clever enough to sit near the door <laughs> no no of course not no no no, no 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 so you were you were right in the midst of it you couldn't beat a hasty retreat nothing to be done oh no All of which means I have been given the singular honour and huge responsibility mm. of um, what taste of jam to leave in our mouths. But before we get to that, we are, of course, going to need some toast. Well, yes. and I've, A toast for the ages. <laughs> I picked this one for a few reasons. It's one from the vaults. Oh, right. And I thought, how can I kind of sacrifice myself for the good of the show... <laughs> This is one of my favourites in no small part because if memory serves, it was one of your least favourites. And so in that spirit of cooperation, I give you some spread toast.
0: Oh, I remember it well. It's like an old friend. God, I can taste it. Taste the delicious toast, I mean. Wow. Okay. I mean, I thought you might be hitting me with this Toast Foley. Hello, breakers, and welcome to the episode number 54. Oh, that's even better. Have we ever done that? This whole episode, it's an entire episode of Toast Foley because the podcast is toast.
1: Oh, God, that's so much better than mine. (laughs) So, listeners, I'm genuinely tempted to ask Mike to just restart this segment so I can steal his joke.
0: (laughs) Oh, no, but I love the fact that we're down memory lane. It feels full circle. Oh, so
1: for those of you who haven't re-listened recently, I am convinced and remain convinced Mm. that the sound of aerosol deodorant being sprayed near a (laughs) microphone Oh, is equivalent to toast being spread. Yeah. I'm in a very small room. This was a bad decision. And if you claim to have not caught the audio and needed it one more time, I would call you a liar and refuse. The Lynx effect is now in action. Oh, This is actually Dove Invisible Dry. Thankfully
0: not inaudible dry. No! <laughs> Haven't found
1: the market for that one
0: yet. Well, isn't that a roll-on? Yes, roll-on is stealth deodorant. Although, I don't know, maybe that's the low noise version and that actually the stick is the true stealth. <laughs> okay, so stick is analog. <laughs> the roller has gone through a DSD process on the way to analog. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and actually, because it is fair to say that
1: spray-on has a really high noise floor. That's true. There's an awful lot of hiss coming out of those. Mm. All of which is to say, I'm happy to have brought myself so low... Uh, because that allows for this incredible comeback, this incredible return to grace. Mm. As I've only done once, maybe twice before in this section, I am pitching an entire album
0: to you. Oh, wow. Cool. It's less than an hour. and I mean, can it possibly measure up to Ingvy Malmsteen's Fire and Ice, though? <laughs> I mean, it's a high bar has been set. I'm going to go ahead and say <laughs> that I don't think it's trying to. I, I, don't, think, I don't think that's its
1: particular aim. Yeah. If I had my druthers, I would say the name, then our listeners would go away, listen to it, and then come back here. And the Mm. reason, very specifically, is if I had been told too much about this album, I never would have listened to it. Mm. As it is, it's my favourite album of the year. Oh, wow. But to describe it is necessarily, unfortunately to sell it massively short.
0: Oh, that's a real dilemma, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, you don't want to shout about it because it'll dissuade people from going to listen to it. There is an
1: ancient Zen Cohen that a man is clinging onto a tree with his teeth. Oh, right. Uh, and the tree's on the edge of a cliff and below him is just a hundred foot drop. Yes. And a student comes up to him and says, what is Zen? And the state of this man is the state of a teacher, because if he leaves his mouth shut, he loses, and if he opens his mouth, he loses. Yes. And that's how I feel about this album, Where Is Home, by Abel Selaco. Okay. And I'm now going to send you, Mike, the opening track. Exciting. It's six minutes long. Let's have a listen. Okay, Mike, so you have just heard the opening track of this album, and
0: I'd love to hear your unfiltered, honest response. Well... There's a difference between a salad and <laughs> an incredible eating experience. You know, you can get a salad which has all the things you kind of expect, and you got some lettuce and some tomatoes and some carrot and some cucumber, you know, the kind of thing you'd get as a side salad in your Pizza Hut, right? Yeah, sure. And it's all got those kind of elements that could be good, but they're all very generic. Mm-hmm. And then there are some times where you'll go somewhere and you'll have a salad. And it's like, you think, oh, there's lettuce. And then you realise it's a type of lettuce you've never had before. And it's like several different lettuces. And it reminds you what's great about lettuce. (laughs) And then you look over and you think it's a carrot. And actually, it's a strange type of orange beetroot. that is slightly different. It's it's richer and you (laughs) didn't even know existed. Oh, beautifully said. (laughs) You know, and the dressing has some kind of element of cider vinegar in that you've never experienced before in a dressing. Mm. And it's like that with this. It's like it's got all these things in it where you go, oh, you know, I really like rich kind of cello textures. And it goes, yeah. I know you do and we're going to give you them mm. but we're going to give you them even better than you thought they would be <laughs> well you know I like a cappella vocals Like a go but don't you like Lady Smith Black Mombasa vocals better mm. but actually wouldn't you like them a bit more kind of modern and, and slightly more heterophonic than it, than it was before and you know actually mm-hmm. do you want some nice beefy kind of low bass notes in? and a little bit of strings where you need it and how about not just any cellist we get Yo-Yo Ma in to contribute as well right <laughs> and so I I see your problem that you've had here, is that you're trying to tell people, I had this great salad the other day. And the moment you say I had this great salad, they go, yeah, it's just a salad, mate.
1: See, in that respect, it gets worse because Abel Seleco, the title artist, is a South African cellist. And it would be true to say that this is an album that combines classical cello with South African percussion and choral traditions, with Mongolian throat singing, with (laughs)
0: West African Chora, and by which time I have shut off. Yeah, I mean, that is a description of some of the most inexcusable albums ever made. Right, it's
1: just like, oh God, oh no. Even saying that I had Yo-Yo Ma, Yo-Yo Ma, while a wonderful cellist has been guilty of some of these truly terrible albums which sound for all the world like you took a brilliant Koto player and Yo-Yo Ma and you put them in a room for exactly half an hour and you've made a half hour album.
0: <laughs> it's that lack of backspace key again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So this is what's difficult about this album for me. It is a salad and it becomes more salady the more you try to describe it, but it is Gorgeous. Yeah. Anyone who's been following the rising stars of the London scene, this album is a who's who. There is Alice Svadsky, there is Fred Thomas, there is Max Bailey, there is Kodali Koyate. Of the West African Koyates, this family from which the finest Korra players have come since time immemorial. Right. It's incredible, and I wouldn't have listened to it. I will put my hand on my heart and say, even though it wasn't pitched to me like this, it was just sent to me as, hey, you should listen to this album. I am unlikely enough to listen to a music track a close friend sends me because that's four minutes of my life. Mm. That would be ridiculous. This is an hour of my life and you haven't even given me a track to start with. You've just said, try this album. So, I mean, they
0: could have given you the 45 second track number four. <laughs> they, they could have done. Maybe that would have been the gateway drug. The
1: only reason I heard it and that I'm able to bring it to you is that I received this message at 5.30 in the morning at Stansted Airport as I was about to join an interminably long queue. Oh. And I thought, you know what? <laughs> there are worse ways I could spend this time. And it's
0: the first time you've ever thought, I wish this queue could last forever. Oh,
1: yes. And all of the hundred different influences, the global influences, they are thoughtfully and well integrated. Yeah. Listen, you've just listened to us for an hour. So don't you be giving me my times too precious, any of that nonsense. You've just listened to me and Mike Mm. for a whole hour. Mm. You can afford to give 55 minutes and 18 seconds to this incredible album. Would you say that track number one should get you if you listen to it, should hook you in? If you listen to track number one and you think this is nothing that gets me, by all means, put it away. My bad. We have extremely different music tastes. Yeah. If, after listening to track one, you think, this is gorgeous, but doesn't quite have the energy and punch that I'm looking for. Yeah. Listen on. Listen on. We are getting to kind of calabash-driven rhythms and like intense throat sung dance pieces. They're coming. They're coming. Yeah. So if that's what you're hungering for, listen
0: on. I mean, I just love the fact that things would come in and you go, ooh, that sounds nice. And it's like, I didn't know that was what I needed then, Mm. but it's arrived and reminded me that that was what I was looking for at that point. Yeah, you don't know it until you hear it. I mean, there's a problem with a lot of people who play classical instruments and they try and broaden out and cross boundaries Mm. that they end up playing in a kind of a classical way in other styles. Right. They take their essential classicalness with them. But certainly there were bits here where I thought, no, this comes across like a different instrument is playing or like someone who Everybody plays an oud or whatever it is yes. is playing this cello rather than like a cello player is trying to do the classical cello thing over a tabla. Yes. You know. Oh,
1: thank you. Yes, you couldn't have said that one better. I don't have this confirmed. I would put a good amount of money that Abel has studied morin right, which is essentially the Mongolian cello. It's too strong. It's fingered differently. The strings are very differently constructed. Right. But in a word, it's the Mongolian cello. Yeah. Because a huge amount of his playing, this kind of percussive bowing. the the attack on the strings um, and even like the gallopy rhythms he
0: does later on. And also the boldness of not playing vibrato. Yes, right? Letting notes have that pure held thing. Yeah, immediately switches me on to any kind of string player because there are so many for whom the vibrato is just a reflex.
1: And I mean, goodness me, it can cover a range of sins.
0: Well, uh, yes, as I well know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) As we both well know. So yeah, that is is my jam. This has been my jam
0: my entire month. Exceptional. I cannot recommend it enough. A worthy one to finish with, I would say.
1: There is also, um, there's a video on YouTube of that first track,
0: which is, basically a video of the live recording with which they did it. Oh, wow. Because I had questions about it. About how it was recorded? I was like, how much of this is overdubbed? How much is is live? Because I wasn't sure from a production perspective, because it sounded great. And I thought it has a little bit of that kind of slightly holographic quality that I associate with a live performance. Mm -hmm. Was it recorded live?
1: My interpretation is that Yo-Yo Ma was added on after. Right. Which is fair enough. If you add out on one person...
0: But yes, that everything else was captured in the room. Desperately trying to think of a joke about overdubbing Yo Yo Ma, but I can't think of one. <laughs> oh well. Oh well, we'll save that for the anniversary episode in a year. It'll be the ultimate staircase humor, won't it? <laughs> it's like, as I was saying, last decade. <laughs> So it only remains for us to say thanks to all you lovely listeners for tuning in Mm. every month for our nonsense for the last four and a half years. Four and a half years. And of course, to our plucky patrons who have been Mm. helping in at least a small way to support (laughs) our editing and hosting efforts and a well-balanced cohort of patrons on the issue of our Arnaudi.
1: I think they've managed to keep the peace in this house remarkably well Mm. the fact that we haven't come to blows after all this time is quite something Mm. um nothing to plug just want to do the thing that mike just did and say thank you um thank you for listening thank you for coming with it's been really fun
0: and if you would like to Uh, and and sorry go on go on yeah Yeah, you you go go on on. (laughs) four and a half years you just thought we'd have managed by now thought we'd have got some kind of system
1: in place. If you would like to be in touch about anything at all, probably the easiest way is on Instagram at Witten and underscore that's W-H-I-T-T-E-N A-N-D underscore or um, on my email John Witten Music, J-O-N-W-H-I-T-T-E-N music at gmail.com.
0: It would be lovely to hear from you. How about you, Mike? What are you plugging? Well, the website's still going to be up, projectstudioteabreak.com. I'm just going to kind of leave that up as a monument to our long-term folly. Mm-hmm. And you can always email us at teabreak at projectstudioteabreak.com. Yeah, that'll come through. And of course, if you still want to sign up for the Patreon campaign, that's patreon.com slash projectstudioteabreak. There's still the equivalent of 10 episodes of extra content on there. And... There are some remaining extras that I'm still going to be rolling out over the next few months as well. It's worth saying
1: that if you're hankering to keep hearing Mike's podcasty voice going they have other options don't they mike
0: there are one or two yeah where can people continue to listen well if you'd like to hear more of my serious uh, technical podcasting voice uh, talking about how a little bit more at five kilohertz would uh, help this guitar come through the mix <laughs> or whatever it is um yes you can find all the other kind of stuff i do over at cambridge mt.com or the extra kind of videos and podcasts and everything that i do are available on that patreon campaign that's at patreon.com slash cambridge empty or one word.
1: So, um, yeah, with all
0: that said. You know what you got to say.
1: <laughs> I do, I do, and I'm
0: holding back. Eking it out.
1: <sighs>
0: Ta-ra, Pets.
1: Ta-ra!